Bluemakers Podcast by MyraBase.com with Orsőbőten. Hey, hey, again. Um, this is the eighth episode, and it was quite an interesting discussion with George Strickland from Tro- Toronto, Canada. Uh, he's an executive director member at the Circular Economy Club in North America. And um, he uh, is working in a sustainable building field. And I really liked the way how he uh, saw uh, the sustainable transition because he says that it's important to think and design in a system to see uh, not just uh, the materials but the use of a product or a building uh, yeah and uh, also um, he shared with me uh, exciting ideas and platforms that I uh, truly recommend you to check like the Circular Economy Club which has a free membership for everybody Uh, there you can talk with people who are also passionate passionate about uh, circularity and share your ideas or ask for feedback uh, regarding your uh, circular plans. And another thing what he recommended me, the asknature.org. Uh, it's about biomimicry uh, in a very um, simple way. You can type anything regarding um, replicating nature in um, businesses or daily activities or how to imitate nature in uh, your activities. And uh, also I, I really like the way how he talked about nature and biomimicry like the elegancy of a tree and the way how we don't respect it and how we can respect it and use it uh yes so i uh, hope you will enjoy this podcast and if do you have further questions or any um feedback please feel free to share it with me You can send me a voice message through Anchor app and also write me a mail or something. And yeah, so let's start the discussion. So uh, my name is George Strickland and um, I'm Canadian. Uh, I actually, uh, I'm, I grew up in Montreal in the French uh, part of Canada and now I live in Toronto which is um, the major city in Canada. Uh, and it's, it's frankly, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a major center of uh, business in North America. It's quite booming these days uh, with the building industry. And uh, that's how I uh, kind of came into uh, this world of uh, sustainability and green. It's really through the building industry, which... Um, I've been in pretty well most of my career, I would say. Uh, and it's from the aspect more of uh, supplying materials to projects is, uh, is my contribution really to the uh, building projects. And um, uh, it was um, in the early 2000s when um, 
this whole green building movement started. And in the United States, they started a, um, a green building council, uh, which then came into Canada. And then we had the Canadian Green Building Council. And uh, there was a certification that they had for uh, professionals that wanted to be uh, to participate in this field called uh, LEAD. And LEAD, stand, LEAD is spelled L-E-E-D, and it stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And, um, and so this program uh, started in the U.S., came to Canada, but it's actually worldwide now. It's, it's all throughout Europe, um, throughout the world, in, in fact. And so what that gave me an opportunity to do was to participate in um, building projects where they wanted to achieve these goals of lead design. And, and so I, I sat in on a lot of projects and I started to get very excited about the, the potential to do better. And really, um, more than that, it's kind of a, a thought process that you get to learn, which is a, a, a systemic thinking and approach to solving problems, really. Um, which was great. And that's really what's kind of brought me in and, and uh, it's uh, helped me to evolve really into this new category of sustainability, which now is being called circular economy. And, and circular economy, the definition of that really is a systems approach to economic development. So uh, it was a perfect transition for me learning about systems thinking and systems approaches in building and that now to be working more generally as a, as a generalist in this world of circular economy. Wow, it's nice. And uh, how did you meet with sustainability? Uh, how uh, this story start in your life? Um, what was the first step what you did uh, regarding sustainability or um, why did you choose to work in this field? Yeah, it was actually in, in business uh, when I uh, when I first, uh, while I was in business and working for a company that supplied um, products and systems to, uh, to buildings and uh, and I and I got my uh, lead accreditation uh, for that. And um, uh, again, I think it was uh, um, you know sitting in on these projects and uh, listening to how you know how it was really simple to to practice uh, this you know sus- being sustainable and, and working. With, with a sustainable approach. And yet, um, in fact, um, architects and engineers and that, they, they all learn this in school, actually. They, they're taught to approach uh, a project and think about it um, more as a system. But then once they get into the real world and they, they just start working with their traditional methods that have been practiced since the beginning, and everyone's working in their own little silos, and then usually they, they, they tend to have their, their, their own notions of what they want to do with their sections of the building, and then when they come to sit down, 
um, they don't always work together. Uh, and that's why you, you get kind of these conflicts happening. Um, and, they, and they realize, wow, we, we should have talked about this earlier, you know, how, how we should have approached this. So I think that that's, um, that's really where I, the, the moment where I thought, hey, th this is really simple to do. It's simple stuff. But um, I think it's all about humans and nature, you know, about change. Change is not easy. And everyone likes to do what they're, you know, work in their comfort zone, I would say. And then, so when you're coming out of school as an architect and you're ready to go, um, you know, you have the right thoughts and the way of working. But then when you actually get to work with your colleagues in the office, you see that they're working like the old traditional way, right? Yeah. And for you to try to change that, it's like kind of like a snowball going up a hill. It's not, it's not easy. So, um, when I say snow to you, uh, th there's snow in your area too, right? It's yeah. not just Canada. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's really how I came to be involved in this, uh, in this area. Yes. Um, you mentioned that thinking in a system, uh, is important. Uh, I'm curious, what does it mean actually for you? Um, how we can uh, imagine system thinking? Right, right, right. So if we think about a building um, and the, um, the process of designing a building, uh, uh, the, the end goal of this systems approach would be that you want to have a building <clears throat> that's designed for durability, it lasts a long time, and that you, you, you pose a question to yourself at the beginning and you say, what's next with this building, right? What's going to happen to it at the end of its useful life? Uh, everyone uses, you know, the term life cycle and that, and, they, and, they, and we, we tend to give life to inanimate objects but that's just the way we, we think but so at the end of a, a the useful term of a building there there should be thought given in the beginning to what what it's going to become not just that it's going to be um taken down and used for another building i mean that's such a huge waste so really what we're trying to do is kind of what nature, we're trying to replicate nature, and in nature, there's no waste. Exactly. Everything has a, pur everything has a purpose, right? Right. And if there, is, if there is something which we call waste, it's really more of a resource for something else. So um, this whole systems approach uh, is thinking about what's, what's next for that uh, object or for that building but then also so when you're designing it you're designing it with um with, with a, a process that think, looks at things as a whole and that uh, they operate uh as a system too so um for example when you are when you're looking at the glass or the windows that are going into the building 
Um, how are these going to be replaced? So the building is going to last, I don't know, 100 years, but the windows might only last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, whatever, and then you, may, you might have... It, it, the fact is that, you know, uh, because of technology, there's so many improvements. So you want to maybe replace some glass because it's not performing as well as something now that you have on the market. But then if you didn't give good thought to, well, how does that glass get replaced? How does it get removed? Um, is it easy to remove? Um, so that's kind of all of the thinking that goes into it just to so that the, um, the building performs optimally. And, and really, when you think about it, we're, we're doing this for ourselves because people live in buildings. So it, it all has to be with the thought of um, people inside. Is this going to be a comfortable building to work or to live in for the whole time too, right? And we're not going to be just, um, you know, in a lot of buildings today, um, we see a lot of glass, which is beautiful, and uh, architects love working with it. But it's it's very exciting when you walk into a an apartment or into a new office and you see all of this glass, and you can see everywhere. But it's nice aesthetically, but from a performance standpoint, um, when you have people sitting on the south side that are facing the sun. And then you have people on the opposite side, on the north side, they have to put their sweaters on because they're cold, right? Right. So was that how? So you have to think about, well, so what was, what happened to the thinking, the systemic thinking in that project, so that this person on one side they might even be getting too hot because of the sun, and this is in the winter time in Toronto. They have the air conditioning on because there's so much sun coming in the glass, right? And yet, on the other side of the building, everyone's putting their sweaters on, you know, and they're sitting, you know, at their desk kind of shivering. So that's um, that kind of uh, illustrates, um, I guess, kind of the thinking that goes into it, but then some of the problems that you might see that could arise. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you think, um, based on your experience, um, what makes a building uh, truly sustainable? Right. So that's that's a great question because that the thinking behind that has changed so much. Like when I first got into the green building movement, um, having a sustainable building meant mostly how how it performed from an energy standpoint and, and if it was comfortable for the occupants and um, when you're doing lead projects and you get you get a, a rating for your building you get a scorecard and the buildings that would have a better energy performance would have a better scorecard um, but uh, but today um, that now we're, we're, we're broadening that thinking that um, we really need to be thinking about it. If we think about it within a circular and a circular economy approach, one of the main things about the circular economy approach is you want to think local more um, so that 
it's it's where you know your supply chain is that it's it's more local um, you're benefiting the people more locally so there's a there's a societal benefit too that you want to uh, support uh, your local suppliers as much as you can now this is a huge challenge because we've we've broadened we've gone so global with our supply chains today I know uh, yesterday uh, my wife and I were um, our coffee machine stopped working so we had to replace it and I was just, the first thing I'm thinking about when I go into the store can I buy a coffee pot that's made in Canada and I'm looking at all the different brands and sure enough it's all made in China wow. so I really didn't have a choice so coming back to uh, you know to the to the building project um, you know, so we really need to try to um, um, purchase locally. But if you can't find it, you have to try to develop that business. So it, it could be a longer-term process. But you know, and and so and so many projects are based on the budget and pricing. So you know, if we bought something local, that's going to go over the budget. Uh, so we better go you know, to Asia uh, to get the product because it's cheaper, right? It, it falls under the price. But I think we have to get beyond um, this whole uh, budgeting um, uh, exercise and, and frankly, uh, economic development and the economies of countries are based on exporting and importing so much. This is a a whole function that we're going to have to try to um, get away from because it's just um, it's harming um, the, the, the way the way things are working today. It's quite interesting how the economy works. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, imported uh, products are cheaper than uh, the local available resources or products. And I think it's not the best way how we uh, use our things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. And I mean, you know, I think um, here in North America, we're, we're probably the top consumers in the world. In the U.S. and in Canada, we buy so much stuff, it's crazy. And we've gotten into the habit of not only a lot of stuff, but cheap stuff. <laughs> and stuff that we replace quickly. Like if my coffee machine gets broken, I'll buy another cheap one and it lasts only a year. So I just throw it out. That's the, that's the problem right there. And um, Americans took their manufacturing business and they, they took it over to Asia and to China and that so that they could produce things cheaply and then import them. But, but today now they're, they're, um, they're, they're all crying because they don't have manufacturing. And it, the reason they don't have manufacturing is because they sent their manufacturing over to China so that they could produce the goods that they designed, like the Apple phone they designed that in the United States. Why didn't they produce it in the United States? They took it, they went over to China to get it produced, right? So that's a whole thinking that we have to get away from in the future. It's not, if that, see, that is not a sustainable 
approach or design for the future that way. Yes. Um, yeah, we uh, spoke about uh, designing in a system and uh, sustainable approaches. Uh, but I'm also curious about what uh, defines a material to be sustainable for buildings. What uh, is your um, perspective about it? Right. So that, that um, so for sustainable materials, again, that whole um, uh, category has, has transitioned over the years from when I first became a lead professional, um, a product was considered sustainable if it was um, not as, let's say, hazardous as, as the, the one before it. For example, paints. Um, what the, the paints uh, that were used in these lead projects, you had to use ones that didn't have um, what they called VOCs in them, which are volatile organic compounds. But, but these are the things that, let's just say, you were painting your baby's, a new baby's room, and you want it to be as healthy an environment as possible. Some nice sunlight and nice uh, natural ventilation. But then you paint on the wall with the old paints that have lead in them and so on and all other kinds of chemicals. And these things can leach out and it's not the most um, uh, positive environment for, for a young person. So that was the thinking originally. But today, um, sustainable materials, we have to come back to, you know, with the circular approach and it's local. So now again, you want to have something local. That's step number one. Um, and then I think the rest of it is mostly about durability. How durable is your product made? And also, again, we come back to that question, what's next? What happens at the end of useful life of this product? Has it been designed properly so that you can uh, repair it, so that you can deconstruct it and then make it again with, with relatively the same resources? Because the problem is we're running out of our natural resources, right? All of these metals and minerals that we use on a daily basis and to manufacture millions of types of materials and products. I mean, like, you know, copper and, uh, you know, lithium for batteries and that. I mean, there's a finite number of years, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of supply that we have left. You know, that's just an example, a small example. So that's why that's the importance of durability. So we have to extend the life, number one. The second thing is about the way it's designed. Design is so important that I've learned because when you are, if you're a designer, and I like to talk to designers these days about how they work because it's really the intentionality, the intent. What do you, how do you intend for that product to work and how do you intend for that product to live and what happens to it at the end of its life? So as designers, when you 
are de designing something for a certain purpose, now you can you can do it with an intentionality that um, gives you all of that durability, um, deconstruction, remanufacturing, all of that. So that to me is how today how we approach uh, sustainability for, for materials. What did you mean uh, replicating nature? Uh, what does it mean? Um, how we can imagine it? So th this is very exciting. This is the most exciting thing that I'm involved in today. Um, it's been said that um, we are at the we are currently in a time when, um, so this science is called biomimicry or biomimetics, which is the science of mimicking nature, what happens in nature, and how we humans can take advantage of, of that. Um, and so uh, it, it's been said that today, we are at the same point in time as the information age, like AI, um, it was 50 years ago. So think about, well, I mean, you can't think about 50 years ago, but um, when, when I was a young man, um, you know, computers and that whole, the computer age was just, just getting started and, you know, digital and everything. Um, they say that this uh, uh, biomimetics is at that stage today. So we are just on the verge of this starting to take off. So we have, we have all kinds of um, uh, universities, uh, schools that are studying this and they have um, students doing projects on this and industry collaborating with um, students just designing and in the lab, they're developing uh, the ways to, like for example, plastic, you know, is made from oil really. So when we take oil, uh, we create these polymers that are uh, synthetic uh, from the oil. Um, but we know that that's not a good thing and we have to stop. So in labs today, they're, they're looking for ways to design natural polymers. So a polymer, um, it's not only for a plastic bottle, but like even for your clothes. So if you have a polyester shirt on, that's made synthetically from oil with uh, those polymers. But today, with biomimicry and so on, we're looking at ways to create um, these types of natural polymers and the way that they would do it in nature you know there's something uh, that you can do online anyone can do it there's there's something called ask nature and it's part of I think a biomimicry site so you know it's a, from kids to adults uh, to anyone interested you can come up with any kind of problem that you have and you can um, type it into this website ask nature and it will give you it, it might not give you the the direct answer, but it's going to give you all kinds of reference materials that you can start on your journey and start investigating this and start getting excited about this whole 
uh, area of research. So again, it's um, this is something that I'm actively working on even in Canada, is working with industry and making collaborations with um, the universities and with research centers that are um, taking advantage of this bio mimicry and this biomimetics um, practice. I think it's very important uh, what you do uh, to make a connection between uh, the economic and the education system. And uh, yeah, because um, I, I saw that, for example, in my country, this relation between the economic and the education system is not the best. And um, the result is uh, awful. There are students with potential, but they can't apply uh, relevant knowledge after uh, when they finish the university uh, in their works. And it's, uh, I think it would be the first step to uh, in this uh, transition. If we can uh, uh, apply uh, the new innovative ideas in practice, but how we apply them if there is no connection. Uh, so yeah, it's very important what you do. That's exactly right. And so I, I even want to, they have an educational program for youth where um, I, I can take some training courses in it and then I can go and teach the, the classes to, you know, to children, to get them interested and to understand the linkage, you know, at a very early age so that they're interested in it going on, progressing through their years. And then, you know, in high schools and in colleges and universities, um, um, we're going to be trying to make the different um, collaborations with industry so that even if you're in high school, you could have a summer job working for a company that's uh, doing this kind of work. And I would say in the next five to 10 years easily, today where we talk about sustainability and there might be a person that has a, a position of being a sustainable director within a company i think that that in the next five to ten years that is going to permeate through the whole organization of the company so that the people that they're hiring the young people that they're hiring will be will have this thinking already inside of them the systems approach to everything that they're, that they're doing. Yeah, I think nature um, does an incredible work. Uh, and biomimicry can teach us how we can apply nature's methods in our activities. Uh, yes, uh, the first time when I um, learned about the biomimicry was when I read the Black Economy book by Gunther Pauli. And there, the biomimicry has a very important role in Gunther's concept. And yeah, I, I think nature is awesome and so simple and wise at the same time. Um, could you please tell us some examples uh, how we can apply biomimicry in practice, uh, especially if we speak about buildings? Well, you know, um... I can give you a specific example of a project that I worked on, but um, uh, in, a, in a house design, let's say, um, the, uh, the architect now will look at ways to um, uh, 
use a passive approach towards um, a, uh, a challenge, a problem. So on the, let's say on the south side of your house where you get the most sun coming in the windows, um, rather than having shutters or maybe some kind of window covering on there, they would plant trees in the front of the house so that uh, these trees in the summertime they would have their leaves so they would provide a natural shade um, for that side of the house um, and then in the winter time um, the the trees lose their leaves and the sun is lower in the sky but then you want to have that uh, passive solar uh, gain into the house which is a good thing so you can see how you're taking advantage of um, the, the solar and the site of the house and uh, and nature um, you know with with trees that's one way that that would be considered maybe a passive design another way is something that I, um, a project that I worked on uh, where we were um, I, I was brainstorming with a, with a person who was in biomimicry and saying to them, if I wanted to replace a window shade on a window um, with something that uh, related more to what happens in nature, how could we do that? And, and um, he brought to my attention like uh, flowers, certain flowers that like a sunflower or whatever that open up with the sun and then when the sun goes away they they tend to close down like that so with, with that um kind of um uh, mechanism like you're, you're thinking about that design uh then we thought okay how could you um make that work so we, we looked at having a uh, a fabric material that would hang in the window and it would be an open type of material naturally, but it would have a coating on the fabric that would expand with sunlight and then contract when sun goes away. So that way, when the sun comes out, the, uh, the coating expands and then it blocks the sun and even if you get a cloud that comes by in the sun that material would would contract and open up so that you get natural light coming through it again so that was just kind of the thinking and the process that went behind an actual um, design project that I I actually um, uh, went through with it with someone who was in the field of biomimicry we, we, we never really um, brought it to fruition and in the end, um, for, for I'm not sure for what reason, but that was the, the, the approach, the system thinking that we, that we used for that project. Um, there, there was another area that I learned in biomimicry recently about um, uh, colors. Um, so for example, um, if you need to, like, like automobiles, uh, they can't be um, 
remanufactured exactly uh, using the same steel because the paint, when they put the paint on, the paint, if you to get the colors, the blues and the reds and everything that people want, they have ingredients in them that are um, toxic, not healthy, but they it affects the uh, the strength of the steel. Um, so that when the, at, the, at the end of the life of the car, when you want to use that steel, you can't use it for a car. You have to use it for another application. So that's not good in a circular world. You want to keep products at least on the same or you want to upcycle them. You don't want to downcycle the stuff. So using biomimicry, um, they were looking at butterflies. And when, when you put... Um, um, if they, if they studied a, the wing of a butterfly under a microscope, th there's no color at all there. What happens in a butterfly is the material gets reflected from the light. So the colors that we see are all about the, the butterfly material reacting to the, to the sunlight, right? So with that same approach now, if we can take... The, um, we can replicate the, um, uh, the molecules, the, the molecular design of that butterfly wing, and then apply it, let's say, to paint that goes on a car. So when they're spraying the paint on, um, it may look like it's, there's no paint at all. But when it gets outside, you've got your color with the light, right? Nice, yeah. <laughs> and then... And then, but the best thing is that they can take that car now, the steel, and at the end of that car's life, they can make, use that steel for another car and infinitely continue to use it for the same upcycle application. It sounds so great. I hope uh, the industry yeah. will apply it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we talked about the relation between the economic and uh, educational system and this just came into my mind that um, there are a very a lot of uh, awesome and great uh, circular and sustainable ideas and business models uh, but most of them are or couldn't be applied in practice yet uh, because of some barriers like legislations and my question is, um, how do you see um, these barriers regarding uh, the sustainable transition? Right, so that, that's, that's a good question. So one of the groups that I had mentioned to you um, in our correspondence was this group called the Circular Economy Club. And the Circular Economy Club is, a, is an excellent um, uh, club and a group to, to get to know for, for anyone out there at, at any age because it's a grassroots global movement. Uh, I've been part of the group for about three years, and it's all volunteers, uh, basically. The headquarters is in London, England, but it's all over the world. And we have a Facebook group. We have a LinkedIn group. Um, the, the purpose of the group is really to um, spread the word of the circular economy, uh, to connect people that are practicing in the business and um, people that are working for companies that are doing it, 
Um, so we schedule all kinds of events that happen. And uh, one of the events that we do, um, we've been doing on an annual basis, but I think we're going to do more of them, is something that they call, it's like a hackathon. Um, it's the, um, I think it's the, the DIF, the Disruptive uh, Innovative Innovation Forum. And it's all online. So it, it was online before we had the pandemic. So it's, it's going to continue this way. Uh, it's the most um, sustainable way to do things, you know, when you're connecting with people and so on. But uh, these events, uh, I can tell you as a businessman, um, fr from that angle, I've learned so much about, you know, from just regular people coming on to these events and talking about their ideas uh, for um, circular you know, circular economy, but, you know, that's a huge category, you know, that you can, it's, it's really sustainability. And so, uh, so the, these events, again, um, sometimes you see um, businesses coming on, just startups, one or two people coming on to talk about what they're doing. Um, I've seen people come on just with ideas to start something. Uh, they want to start a business, or people just with ideas in general. They think it's a great idea to bring to the forum, you know, for for discussion. Um, you know, you it's you become a member for free, which just makes you part of the big uh, the, the worldwide network. And um, there's lots of uh, social media feeds. There's lots of activity. There's education and training. There's mentorships that can be taken advantage of on there. Myself, I'm actually doing, they, they just started something called the Circular Economy Institute for Learning. And, um, and I've been working in this field for so long and, and I don't really have any kind of a certificate for it. So they have certificate programs now. Um, so that I'm actually working on one and eventually maybe to become an instructor uh, down the road so that I could go uh, into a college and maybe teach a program there, or I could go to industry um, events and, you know, and teach and educate industry on this because, um, you know, it used to be, sustainability used to be kind of a nice buzzword, but today it, it's just, it's so important uh, that everyone has to be, you know, thinking about it and working on it. Yes, the Circular Economic Club is Avesome. Uh, Anna Tari, the founder of the Circular Economic Club, I think uh, she makes um, huge and incredible work. And yeah, she created this platform, which is uh, free, as you said, and gives an opportunity to people from the whole world to connect with uh, each other, uh, to learn more about circularity, uh, because it's a better new topic and it's important to educate ourselves and each other. So, yeah, I, I think it's um, it's really cool how uh, the club is works. And I like the way how they communicate uh, because um, it makes uh, the people to take an action, 
not just brainstorming around. Absolutely. And just something as simple as that, uh, through the Facebook group of the Circular Economy Club, you can just see it's just regular people going on there and talking about regular ideas. Like, for example, the other day I saw something on there, people in, um, uh, I don't know whether it's Croatia or Serbia, that were taking uh, their uh, old coffee grounds and using it on the ice you know, to, uh, to help, um, I don't know whether it actually melts the ice, but at least it makes it not slippery in the winter time. So rather than using salt or anything that's not really great for, um, you know, the environment or for animals to walk in and so on, um, you know, they're trying to come up with natural solutions and, and, and not only natural, but even better if you're taking waste, and turning it into a resource too, right? yeah. something simple like that. And again, that was on the the Facebook group there. Yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, it's very important to turn waste into value, and not just look it at a uh, as garbage. Yeah. Exactly. And on the Circular Economy Club, one last thing I'll just point out is that there is a a movie that uh, the CEC sponsored. And it's called 2040, the year 2040. And um, you can go on and, f and find a preview of that um, uh, online. But we're uh, officially launching it, I think, the screening in April. Uh, what would you say for the listeners where they should start um, if they want to uh, work uh, with sustainability or circularity? Uh. getting involved um, and not being part of the status quo it's uh, you know uh, get involved find ways to, to get involved um, very simple way of getting involved in this um, biomimicry uh, whole opportunity and it's you know it's like science but it's nature and it's all very uh, basic that we live every day. You know, when we go and walk in the park or in, in the woods, uh, I like to take my dog uh, for a walk every day and, um, you know, and go slowly and, and just through the woods and, you know, stop once in a while and, you know, see what's happening out in the woods. Like trees, for me, the, the, the basic part of, nature and, and ecology and the best example is a tree and the way it it takes waste so compared to a human a tree takes the waste of uh, carbon dioxide which is bad the trees absorb that for us and then they output oxygen they they give us back oxygen how can you how could nature design something better than a tree that takes the waste, absorbs it in, and then gives us, shares with humans, oxygen to live, right? So that's kind of, to me, uh, that's the approach that I like to take. For example, if I'm designing my house, today um, a lot of people would say, well, I want my house to be net zero, Net zero has kind of become a buzz a buzzword where I'm not using 
uh, fossil fuel energy. I'm using renewable energy, and my I'm my the um, the needs I have for my energy are exactly covered by the good design of my house and the renewable energy that I'm using. So I'm net zero. But net zero, why, why just be net zero? A tree is not net zero. It's net positive. So when I design my house, I want it to be net positive so that I'm creating more energy in my house and I really need, and I'm putting that back onto the grid for someone else to use, right? So that that's really the thinking that um, I would like to see people uh, try to, um, to get to, is that we're not trying to be a little bit less bad every year. Like I think that a lot of people or, and, and companies operate that way. They, it makes them feel better that I'm doing a little <laughs> bit less bad. It's still that's bad. That's not a good thing. Yeah. That, that's negative. That's less bad. We don't want to talk about bad. We want to be positive. We want to add positive, positivity, I think, uh, in, in everything that we do. Yeah, uh, doing more with less uh, what we already have. That's exactly right. I mean, what, what, one of the things that got me hooked into the sustainability was uh, when I read a, this book called Cradle to Cradle. And um, uh, someone recommended that I read it um, if I was interested in sustainability and design because the guys, the guys, the authors of the book were uh, an American architect and a German chemist. Um, the German chemist was someone who um, worked for Greenpeace, the, uh, uh, which was a Greenpeace is probably one of the earliest movements on you know the environment and trying to protect uh, the resources of the world, like whaling. I guess Greenpeace became very well known initially for helping to protect whales in the oceans. But um, this book that I bought. As soon as I picked it up, I realized this book is not a regular book. It's not made from regular paper, or it doesn't come from a tree. This book is not a tree. It's, it's something different. And sure enough, it was made from, when I, I go back to these uh, natural polymers that are maybe de developed in a laboratory, so that this book could be uh, upcycled and you could make another book or another material with the polymers that the book was made out of. Whereas, why would you take something like that's elegant in nature like a tree and make a book from it? Because what happened, first of all, the book is, is paper, but then you put all of these glues and you put the ink and all of the elements in there that are that have certain um, toxic elements in there that aren't good. So you can't make another book out of it. You eventually, um, when it falls apart or whatever, it uh, it goes in the garbage, goes in the landfill. So what a sad story that is, taking the elegance of a tree and making something of it and then throwing it or burning, you know, in the garbage. 
right? Exactly. So I think we have to respect um, the uh, again the elegance of a, of a tree, of a simple tree, and what it and what it represents and what it what it brings to us. Yeah, it's it's a good example how we can use uh, our knowledge based on nature in a good way. And um, I know that there is the stone paper technology, which is a bit of similar to this, um, without chemical bleach and it's uh, waterproof and washable. Uh, if I remember well, is made out of calcium carbonate and biopolyethylene resin. Uh, but I'm not sure. Um, and it uh, can be recycled as much as we want it. Uh, it's interesting. Right. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting idea. But the thing, again, is that when we talk of recycling is a, is a tricky term because, um, you know, you can take plastic bottles and recycle them. Um, but then you have to think about what, what's the next life that they're being used in. Um, and is it, are you, are you maintaining the value of that material that's in the plastic bottle so that it can continue to cycle and cycle and cycle? So, because if you're just recycling that plastic bottle into, um, let's say, um, material for a park bench, and then what happens at the end of the life of the park bench? I don't know. I, it, it, it keeps on getting downcycled and eventually it's going to end up in the, in the landfill, in the garbage, um, because it's, you're, it's losing its value in that, in the material chain. So we like to follow that whole material chain progression, but ideally we have to keep it going up, upcycling it and keeping it going like that. Bloomakers podcast by myrabase.com with Osher Wüten.